0: Well, thank you, Randy, and good morning, Church at the Red Door. It is now day 56, day 56. It absolutely gutted me when I heard the other day that Riverside County had now uh, extended our whatever this is. It it feels like I have half the information, I don't have half the other information, but uh, at least June 19th will be social distancing and masks and all that, and who knows after that, who knows so uh, it. This is so strange, so unforeseen, and yet now we are fifty-six days into this. With maybe, maybe we're halfway through. I don't know. Uh, uh, but God knows. God knows. So I'm excited about this morning. I also move into this morning with great trepidation. I. This is probably a one of the more powerful messages you'll ever hear. I have got more disparate things written down here. I have no idea how this is going to turn out. You are uh, you should be as curious about how this is going to turn out as I am. Uh, I have, I have no idea. I've been praying about this. There's so much packed in here. The message is startling and it's powerful, especially given the backdrop from last week. So why don't you let me open in prayer? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for my friends. I thank you for the privilege of being able to Serve and continue to meet because of our incredible, extraordinary AV team. But Lord, we uh, our prayers are for the broken around the globe, uh, those who are suffering, Lord. And as we've been praying as a church body this last week, Lord, we're praying for a mighty revival in people's hearts, a spiritual awakening, Lord. And I'm praying that you would use this message this morning, in small part, at least, with our community, both online and Church of the Red Door to Lord open our eyes to the reality of who you are and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, good morning again. I, I'm I'm ready to roll here, I think, but I, I'm I just don't know how this is going to turn out. So I'm gonna start by going back to where we went. Last week, last week was a tough week. We looked at the next step, this incredible defeat at I because of the idolatry of Achan, and we kind of saw some patterns in that. And we went all the way went all the way into the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira and many of you. Then we talked about judgment in the church and that some were sick because of this. And we looked at First Corinthians chapter eleven. Uh, which I'm sure Pastor Paul is going to talk about because we're going to be taking communion at the conclusion of the message this morning together, and uh, and we wanted to look at this idea that God is still judge. You know, when I think about this, I think about two parts. I kind of divide the New Test well, the entirety of the Bible into the incredible, extraordinary grace filled news of the gospel that we're saved by grace through faith, having nothing to do with our own works. Ephesians is clear. The whole narrative of Scripture is clear. And yet, in the New Testament, we have these letters, and many of them, for instance, the letter that James wrote is very much about Christian ethics. I think it's easy to fall off of the horse on one side or the other. Some people can become become so concerned with Christian ethics, which is a good thing to be uh, in, in, absorbing ourselves in Christian ethics, that they can begin to lose track of the grace and, and the beauty of the gospel. And last week we were really talking about, in some ways, ethics. We were talking about the idolatry and the greed that were found in, in Ananias and Sapphira and Achan and others in Gehazi. And, and yet we're gonna shift and try to stay balanced on this horse. I don't regret last week's message at all. Uh, because it takes the backdrop, the dark backdrop of the sinfulness of men to understand the gospel and its fullness. If you don't have the, the black backdrop, the, the judgment of God, the fearfulness of God, the, how much God hates sin, it's going to be very difficult for you to fully appreciate the incredible news of the grace of the gospel. And that's important to say because you can get caught up last week and begin to be fearful. And and again, there there's a point that we should all work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we don't have to live in that. We can move into a place of incredible grace and incredible freedom. And I want to try to show you that through the text. We are going to take some very bizarre routes this morning. And I'm compelled by the text here. But I we're gonna I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna preach some things this morning that you will never, I I believe, maybe never have ever heard preached on. One of those being Genesis 38 when we get to that and Judah and it's got all kinds of illicit things going on and lying and deception and everything full of it and yet we're gonna see how that plays right into the narrative of scripture which God saves men by grace. Where I wanna start this morning is I I wanna begin to look at What is the distinction between an Ananias of Sapphira and an Achan and a Gehazi? It very much is a heart thing. We know that God hates sin. That's the, the real moral of the tales that we saw last week. We know God hates sin. That's clear. He hates it. Why does he hate it? Because of the destruction that it brings to his creation. Sin as a violation of the purpose for which God created. It's our own, it. We're self violating. We we move away from God's calling in our life, and as a result, we we don't walk in the fullness of life. You know God talks a lot about the heart, and I want to talk about some of the outcasts of Scripture, some of the uh, the barren, the second born, uh, those who were poor. Uh, Why does God always seem to reverse it and use those kinds of people? A lot of times, because of the heart, and I want to talk about that. You know, 1 Samuel chapter sixteen, verse seven. Listen to what it says. It says, "The Lord said to Samuel." Do not look at his appearance, and he's talking about David, or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God, excuse me, he's talking about his brothers. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the the competitors for the throne were being uh, compared to David, and God simply says, I see the heart. What was it about David's heart that set him apart? You know, it's unique if you go back and look, David was of seven brothers. He was the least. We see that over and over in scripture. Those who who were barren were able to bear uh, children. Those who uh, were second born and didn't have any rights to uh, the inheritance, in terms of the doubling of the inheritance that the firstborn had or the control over the estate, uh, very much the firstborn were an advantage, few, and yet God often reversed that. Why is that? And go back and look. Isaac was born after Ishmael, and yet the promise was made through Isaac. Joseph was certainly not the oldest of his brothers. He was the second uh, uh, only to Benjamin uh, down the list of his brothers, and yet. He took preeminence, which was an amazing thing. Jacob over his older brother Esau, even though there was deception involved. Uh, David over his, obviously, that we just alluded to, older, taller, better looking, more impressive uh, brothers. And yet God chose David. And then finally, God chose David over Goliath, even though he was so small in stature. So we see a complete reversal. I think one of the things I take away from this study of Ananias and Sapphira, and the thing that grabs me and brings strikes fear into my heart is I think if we were to be honest, last week we can see a little bit of Achan and Gehazi and even Ananias and Sapphira in our own hearts at times. And of course that can produce fear as we saw in Acts chapter five, it produced great fear among the church after they saw this happen. They knew God was incredibly serious about sin. So what is it that God does? And yet he begins to give victories to the ones who are the down and out, the the outcasts. And in fact, we looked at this a number of weeks back. If you'll remember 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 17 through 21, uh, again, we looked at this and I want to revisit this. Remember when we talked about inquiring of the Lord, but we're going to glean something in addition to that, but let's reread it. 17 through 21, it says when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David, and when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out at the valley of Raphaim, and David inquired of the Lord, that's what the humble do, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So he came to Baal Peretzim and defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies. Now remember that, broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, he named that place Baal Peretzim, meaning master of breakthrough. They abandoned their idols there. So David and his men carried them away. Now, one of the things and we see him go into a battle the next time he inquires and the Lord gives him a whole different picture, you know, I think there's a certain invincibility that happened with once they had crossed the Jordan and defeated uh, the the folks at Jericho, there was a certain, well, we don't need the Lord anymore. We're strong in and of ourselves. And that never really occurred to them to inquire of the Lord. And yet, who is it? That's the question this morning. Who is it that inquires of the Lord? Well, it's typically the outcasts inquire of the Lord. They, they don't trust their own instincts, their own intuition, they're constantly on their knees in prayer they're constantly in a worshipful state Lord, what do you want? there's no defeats come when we refuse to ask the Lord anymore. We go weeks, months, years, some of us without really diligently seeking the Lord's will uh, even today you know Lord, what do you want what do, what do you want this day to look like and yet we see that with people like With people like David, we see that with those uh, women who were barren. We see constantly seeking the Lord to solve their issues, inquiring of the Lord over and over. So I think it's the broken, the outcasts that walk in great levels of humility. And because of that humility, they are constantly inquiring of the Lord. And then when they inquire of the Lord, well, they see incredible breakthrough. Thanks the incredible breakthrough. Let's just talk about a few of the women in Scripture who were barren and God completely turned the tables as they their, their barrenness humbled them in very profound ways and drove them to the Lord. We see this over and over. God using those things that are not to confound those things that are. He uses the uh, the the, those that are not as educated. You, you see that over and over in Scripture. Uh, Jesus, in fact, they accused in John chapter 7 of not being an educated man. Uh, kind of a hilarious thought, but they accused the, them and that his disciples, these men were untrained. Why does he often do that? He flips the tables. And as it relates to barrenness too, think about it. Sarah conceives Isaac, who would then become the great sacrifice, even though she had been considered barren. Uh, Rebekah was barren and then she conceives Jacob who becomes then the father of the 12 tribes. And then, and then Rachel was barren and then she conceives Joseph who becomes an incredible leader and a savior of all the Israelites. And then Manoah, she is barren and conceives Samson who becomes the strongest man, a, great, a man of great strength. And then Hannah was barren and then she conceived Samuel who's one of the great prophets in all of Israel's history. And then of course, Elizabeth, she was barren and she ended up conceiving John the Baptist who would be the forerunner, uh, laying the foundation for the Messiah to come. Each one of these. Now, we can take a spiritual parallel to this too. When we feel that barrenness, God can flip it. God doesn't see uh, like we see. He doesn't think like when we think. When he sees brokenness and humility, he, he thinks there's someone I can use. That's the hope in the story of Achan. That's the hope in the story of the Gehazis because they walk through this brokenness and it's those people where God can just flip the tables and just turn the tables and then all of a sudden he begins to use them. Now, I can't speak to Achan and Gehazi and Ananias and Sapphira in terms of their heart, but if there's humility there, God can turn those tables. It's the very story of the gospel itself. So what is Uh, this issue? Well, it's the defeated. It's those that are left behind. It's the marginalized, the unrecognized. They've been humbled by life, and they are aware of their deficits. And they don't ever imagine it's their power or their glory that brings victory to them. They know exactly who it is. They know it's the creator of the universe. And in fact, as a result of that, they become Profound worshipers. Look, until you understand the black backdrop of sin and how much God hates it because of its destructive power, until you understand that, you won't understand the gospel in its fullness. And until you understand the gospel in its fullness, you won't be a worshiper. You know, it's fascinating. In John chapter 4, Jesus is having this conversation with the woman at the well. And listen to what he says. He says, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Well, who are the worshipers? The worshipers are those that bow, that fall, that are contrite, that recognize their utter deficit their utter inability they know Jesus words were right that apart from him we can't do anything we can make no spiritual progress we can have no profound impact on the kingdom of God bringing it to earth unless we're so at his feet listening for his instruction listening for his voice so here's the question we'll go back to where we started uh, I want to go back. I want to look again at Achan and the valley of Acor. Remember the valley of Acor? Acor meaning trouble. And I asked you last week some of you are struggling, some of you are finding yourselves in trouble. You have a place, a great deficit in your own heart, and it's grievous. And in hearing this, last week may have felt like piling on. But I need to tell you, understanding that you're a million miles away from God in this particular area. It drives you to a place of contrition, drives us to a place of repentance. Now, let's go back to Joshua chapter 7 and look at this because hidden in the details of this little quick genealogy, and then we're going to look at another one. You'd say, genealogy, how boring. No, there's amazing, amazing message embedded in these genealogies. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Now, the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully. Now, remember, that was Achan and Achan alone and his family. But how did they act unfaithfully? Well, they hadn't inquired of the Lord. Now, it, was, it wasn't it was just Achan's sin, but they didn't inquire before they went up against I. Nothing like they had done when they went up against I. Uh, those in Jericho. The sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, and the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the band. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the son of Israel. That's what we looked at last week. Now, what's fascinating about that is it traces it back to Zerah, from the tribe of Judah as being the origins of this man Achan. Part of his lineage, part of his heritage was this interesting figure named Zerah. This is what's going to take us now to Genesis chapter 38, which as I said earlier, I think it's got to be one of the most least preached chapters in the Bible. I I wasn't even going to read it because it's got so much... Uh, illicit stuff and crazy things and, and, and if, this is not let me put it this way. This is not something that's used in children's ministry. okay? So I, we'll just leave it for that. Uh, Genesis 38, I'm just going to give you kind of a summation of it. So we have Judah. Now Judah was one of the tribe, one of the uh, leaders of the tribe. Judah would be the tribe which Jesus, the Messiah would come through. Judah was the fourth. His mother actually uh, was Leah, who was, again, the the second chosen. She wasn't who Jacob really loved. Uh, He loved uh, her sister. And yet, here's here's Leah, who's birthing Judah. Now, so Judah was one of the 12 tribes, one of the 12 sons uh, of Jacob, who was the genesis of the 12 tribes of Israel, who would then be later called Israel, and his name was Chay changed, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Judah, here's the story in Genesis 38. So Judah goes out, decides to take a Canaanite wife for himself. Did he inquire of the Lord about that? Was there something there? Or did he just see a woman that he lusted after? We can see that lust was definitely an issue for Judah, takes her, uh, decides to marry her, and then ends up having, having three sons with this Canaanite woman. One was Ur, one was Onan, and one was Shelah. Now, you've got to understand it's important that the oldest, Ur, married Tamar. Now, Tamar is a different Tamar than we get during the time of David, but he marries this girl, Tamar, and then the Bible simply says that the Lord killed Ur because he was evil. He was evil. So, it was responsible for the Israelites to, if they had a brother, that brother then takes the place of that uh, son to go ahead and, and be able to procreate with his wife. I'm putting this as uh, tactfully as I can. So Onan now has the task of going in and, and allowing that line of his brother, Er to continue. And uh, you'll have to read the story for yourself, but it doesn't happen. We'll just put it that way. And then God takes Onan's life. And now you've got Shelah, but he's much younger. And now Tamar and, and Jacob uh, Judah, excuse me, is unwilling to give such a young son to this uh, to this uh, his daughter in law because there's too much of an age difference. He's too young. So they said, "Well, we'll wait till he gets older," and then he promised to give him that. And so he went back on his word. Shelah got older, and what happened? Uh, Judah didn't come through with his word. So Tamar now get the picture. Barren, uh, has nothing, has no husband, complete outcast. Uh, In that culture, she may have just been completely thrown aside and maybe even suffering in great ways that we can't even understand. So she says, how am I going to do this? So Judah comes down to water, uh, to I think the shearing of the sheep as the story goes. And Judah comes down and she dresses as a prostitute. Now catch this. You just can't make this stuff up dresses as a prostitute, uh, lures, but and Judah has a lustful heart, as as we've seen before. Judah goes into her, sleeps with her, and she finds out she's with child. He leaves, he doesn't know anything different. She kept a couple of his items, uh, held them back because she know if her father-in-law found out that she was pregnant and hadn't been married inside the family, that he would have her stoned. And yet he was the one, that was guilty. So she kept a couple things back. Finally, it happens. She, she becomes pregnant. He finds out about it. He's going to have her stone. And then she has this great reckoning, not too, dif- not too different than Joseph and his brothers, this unpacking. And theologians realize there's a similarity there, this unveiling. And she says, it's you. You were the one who, uh, you thought I was the prostitute, but you actually said. So now we're talking about an incestuous relationship. Unbelievable. And out, well, it's, she's not just pregnant with one; she's pregnant with two. And this is Paris, and also Zara. And strange story: the out of the out of the womb comes Zara's hand first, and then guess what we get? We get a picture of God. Uh, they tied a scarlet thread around Zara's finger. Now, scarlet thread we've talked a lot about, right? That was what uh, saved. Uh, the woman Rahab, the harlot Rahab, tie that scarlet thread. We traced it all the way back to the Passover, and even before that, uh, that scarlet red, uh, that scarlet thread runs throughout history. So Zerah's coming out. Looks like he's going to be the firstborn, and the scarlet thread's tied around his finger. And yet Perez overtakes him. And comes around Zara and is then born first, and then Zara is born second with a scarlet thread. You know, I thought for years, why? why would this be the case? Uh, because we know in the lineages we'll see in a minute, Jesus would come through Perez, not through, uh, uh, not through his brother Zara. But and here we have again, we have a flipping. But why? If it's Jesus, why not the thread? Why not that scarlet thread tied around? the finger of Paris. What was the purpose of that? It, it seemed like Zerah had the thread, but then Jesus didn't come through Zerah. Uh, and so I, well, I was always a little bit confused about that. And I think until now, and I think I'm beginning to get a sense of why that is. And I wanna share that with you this morning. So let's go back now to Matthew. We're gonna to go to another genealogy. Bear with me. I know this is hard to put together, but there's an glorious message. Once we can do all this blocking and tackling, and hopefully then bring this to a head so it can give you encouragement beyond what you can imagine, even in, your, even in your valley of Achor, even when you have failed so miserably, so you're so far off track, you can sense that Achan and Gehazi and Ananias and Sapphira spirit in you, that, that flesh appetite, whatever it is that's put you in the valley of Acor, this is a message of hope. For you Now, back to the uh, genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 6. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, as we just learned through that bizarre story, was the father of Perez and Zerah. Now, why does it list both? Because Jesus didn't come through Zerah, but it mentions both we're going to talk about that, by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hisron, and Hisron the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nachshon, and Nachshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. Now, you say, well, what, you know, usually I just, I don't even read that part. I just read right through to the, to the better parts. I skip the genealogies. There is so much here that I want to unpack this a little bit. And I'm telling you, if you'll hang with me for just a minute, and Lord, Lord, I need help in this. If, if you can hang with me for just a minute, you're going to see something unfold that I think will uh, create in tremendous hope for those of you who may feel like you are, in fact, in the Valley of Achor today. Abraham who was Abraham it starts with Abraham well Abraham was a pagan he was a polytheist that lived out uh, in a in a kind of the metropolitan place of his time or the Chaldees and so God chooses Abraham why I don't know I can't speak to that he just chose Abraham maybe it was something in Abraham's heart maybe God like David saw something in Abraham's heart I don't know And then Isaac, the father of Jacob. Isaac, again, being the what? Second born. Uh, Ishmael, promise didn't come through Ishmael. Promise came through Isaac, as God said over and over in the first uh, 20 chapters of Genesis. And then the father of Jacob. Well, who was Jacob? Jacob was the deceiver. He he deceived his own father and, and took over the birthright from Esau and became the Uh, was promised all these things but these are this is not so far this isn't a great picture of this crowd right and Jacob the father of Judah well we just learned about Judah I mean he was a womanizer he slept sleeps with a prostitute he he has an incestuous relationship unknowingly with his daughter-in-law I mean who is this guy who is Judah and then Jesus would come through the tribe of Judah Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah and we talked about that a little bit earlier I mean Perez and Zerah, I mean, what's the purpose of naming both of them, we'll see that, and by Tamar, Perez was the father, and so who was Tamar? Tamar was a a deceiver as well, I mean, she was doing it for her own own benefit and good, and I can't say that I wouldn't have done differently than she did, but she certainly deceived Judah. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Aminadab. Now, Aminadab was a, a man who, had journeyed with Moses through the wilderness. This is to try to put these people in order. Aminadab's a a man who journeyed through the wilderness, but he wasn't included in that attitude of Joshua and Caleb. So he was one of the failed generation. Uh, We don't learn a lot about Aminadab. Maybe he was one of those that were murmuring and complaining or, or, or I don't know. But Aminadab was the one who journeyed and died in the wilderness. Aminadab, then the father, of Naqshon and Naqshon the father of Salmon now catch this this is fascinating Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab so after they went in and conquered Jericho Salmon in this line marries a gentile harlot that had then taken the god of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and become a proselyte but look at her background you talk about the outcasts the marginalized even among those at Jericho, she ends up marrying Salmon, and what happens? They have Boaz. Well, if you know anything about your Bible at all, Boaz becomes a a type of Christ. That's where we get the Book of Ruth. So Salmon's the father of Boaz by Rahab, Excuse me. Uh, Salmon's the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Okay. So you got to understand that this is fascinating. Now we get Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Love to unpack that, but don't have time. Uh, and he marries who? He marries Ruth. Okay, so we've got Boaz, then becomes the father of Obed by Ruth. Well, who is Ruth? Well, this is, again, this is the lineage of Jesus. Who's Ruth? Well, she's a Moabite.s I mean, they had been told very clearly in Genesis 19, uh, who were the Moabites? Were well, they were descendants of Lot. How did how did the Moabites come into existence? Well, Lot's daughters got him drunk, slept with their father, and then ended up having another incestuous relationship. You talk about the lineage of Jesus. I mean, these are our heroes. I mean, these are our these are those, these are the patriarchs. These are the ones that had tremendous faith. The Bible talks a lot about the faith of many of these folks. Uh, clearly, many of these people in heaven will meet them one day, and yet they had found themselves at some point in their lives in the valley of trouble, you know the, they were told the Moabites were a picture just metaphorically for sin and famine and disease and distress and and they had uh, the genesis again was was the an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters and and the and the children of Israel were say I have nothing to do with the Moabites, and yet Ruth comes along. You can talk about an at, out marginalized outcast. She's on dire straits, and yet the Lord saw her heart and her love that she had for Naomi. He redeems her through Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. They then have Obed. Obed has Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of David. And I. I so let's try to begin to put this together. First of all. Paris and Zara why why the thread around there? Well why are both of them mentioned in this genealogy if only Jesus was only through the line of Paris Well I will tell you this I think that it's in their names uh, again a, a hidden picture of the coming of the Messiah the of Jesus. Perez actually means and it's what we saw a minute ago breakthrough. That's what that means and now we have Paras. It means breakthrough. Zerah means arising, uh, like a new dawn. If you put that together, you really get a picture of who Jesus is. I mean, Jesus is encompassed by that. What is it? Well, it's going to, Jesus is going to be a light dawning, uh, rising from there. It's like Isaiah had seen a, a great light will come out of the northern part of Israel, the Galilee of the Gentiles a great light, it's a rising, it's a dawning. Jesus, in fact, refers to himself as the light of the world, okay? And then also it's gonna be one that's gonna breach or like Perez is gonna break through. He broke past his brother Zerah and together we have a light that's dawning and breaks through sin and destruction and the enemy and all the defeat and all the death. Jesus is gonna break through all of it. And you put those two names together and you get a beautiful picture of the Messiah. I don't know about you, but I mean, this is just hidden in a genealogy and a crazy story like Genesis 38. We get a picture of Jesus that becomes more starkly clear and gives us hope beyond anything you can imagine. I mean, maybe you're in that place today where you just feel like, I I am so far down the road of trouble. I am so alienated. I I I'm the Ananias and Sapphire. I don't know why God hasn't taken me out. Maybe you're in a place like that in your life today, or you know somebody in a place. You either have the message for you, or you have this message that begins to grow in your heart, and you recognize even the lineage of Jesus Himself is fraught with outcasts, fraught with those who Uh, had failed, fraught with the marginalized, the second born or later, filled with the barren. I mean, this is what Jesus came to rise up and to conquer. You know, when I think back about Joshua and he's down on his knees and how can this happen? How can this have happened that we were defeated at Ai and we lost these men and what does God say? He says, rise up. He actually, the name Zara, meaning rise up and dawn. He's saying, get up off your feet. Don't stay in defeat. Yeah, you sinned, the camp is sinned, you didn't inquire of the Lord. But he says, rise up, the very name of Zerah, which to me is very, very powerful as we understand the New Testament. So where does that leave us? Uh, How do we go about this? How do we, what if you do see failure? I think what God's saying to us today, and I wrote this down, I want to read it to you. I think God's saying, I see your failure. Because God sees the heart. He knows, he sees everything. I mean, there's nothing that we can hide from God. I see your failure. I see the long line of idolatry and abuse in your own lineage. Maybe your parents or grandparents. I mean, most of us don't even Barely know our grand, grandparents, much less our great grandparents, or what you may have a long line of see uh, of sin and failure in your own life, and and the and the lives of your forefathers. But God says, "I see that. I see the failure there, and I think He what God is saying is, I can redeem it. I will redeem it. I am God, and there is no other. You see that's what I get." from these stories. It's like, God, I can redeem anything. I can even bring the Messiah through a, a band of nerdy wells. I can bring it through, I mean, Judah. I mean, look at the tribe that he came from, Judah. Uh, and boy, you talk about failure. And all of a sudden, what does that do? That drives me to worship. Uh, when I see the sin in my life, when I see the sinfulness of my of my background, It drives me to worship, it drives me to him when I hear this message. It doesn't have me shrink away in fear and hiding from him like they did in the garden. It draws me back to the tree of life, knowing that the message has been the same from the beginning. The Old Testament is just as much a message of the gospel and the grace of the creator of the universe as the New Testament. The New Testament we understand of the new covenant much more fully what that means, but God had been talking about this even down through these genealogies. So what do we do if you do find yourself in the Valley of Achor, in the Valley of Trouble today? Well, be transparent. Uh, don't You can't hide anything from God. Get down on your knees this morning. Uh, get down on your knees and say, Lord, forgive me, I'm asking you. Lord, I don't wanna stay in this Valley of Trouble. I, I believe in your grace. I believe in the story uh, Lord of your mercy, that I would just repent and ask you to forgive me and and lead that kind of lifestyle. Of course, be on your guard. I mean, uh, Christian ethics is important. We don't we know the devil roars a, like a like a lion seeking seeking someone to devour. We know that, I and mean, we're not ignorant of that. We've been talking about that over the last few weeks. And then lastly, uh, get back up. I mean, really, dust yourselves off. Get up. Uh rise up, I mean, that's the very name of Zara. Rise up, don't stay where you are. The Bible says that a righteous man falls seven times but gets up every time. The point is that there's grace for you, no matter how far you've fallen, no, no matter and and so, yeah, God hates sin, and yes, we have the stories of Achan and Gehazi and Ananias and Sapphira to be a a helpful understanding of how much God hates sin. But let me tell you something, rise up. Get up off the ground, Joshua. What are you doing? Of course you've sinned, now rise up. 2 Corinthians chapter three says this, but we all, 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the lord the spirit how how are we changed ultimately folks we we're never going to satisfy this by trying to go back to the law and live in the fear of course the law kills we talk about it all the time the law is a ministry of death and condemnation but if you can just behold the glory of this message this morning uh, of that of that one who came and rose up and light out of the Galilee of the Gentiles and he dawned and then he broke through all the pain and all the suffering and all so he could redeem us from the curse of the law, so that he could bring us up the valley of Acor. It it didn't look so good and it didn't end so good with Achan, but it's not so with us. If you find yourself in the valley of trouble, there is there is an answer to this. You know I was listening to it uh, this week as I was preparing for this message and I was listening to Corey Asbury's song. In fact, maybe you can go and listen. We'll have it up on a YouTube link and you can go back if you're on the website and hit it and listen to this song. But here's some of the lyrics. It said, it describes God's grace as overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It feels reckless. You know, it's like this guy has failed so many times. Why it's reckless for God to continue to love him? I mean, why would He do this? Why would He continue to bear with this person? And we think about others, but you know what? I think about me. I think that I have. Fa- I'm talking about after Jesus. I have failed so many times. I fall so far short so often, and yet the Lord says this. He 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 cries out, Zara. He he cries out, Rise up, you know, Paris, break through. I've already broken through, so get up off your feet and get back into the action. You know, the answer really is what does lead to a powerful life of changing worship? Well, it's just our understanding of God's unfailing love. I want to take you in closing to a place in Hosea. Hosea chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 4 and then 14 through 16. Hosea 2, 4, and then 14 through 16. And if this doesn't give you hope, now this is uh, the context here is Israel's legendary unfaithfulness. Okay? So you talk about reckless love. God continues to reach out to Israel, failure, and then failure, and then failure, and then failure. And yet God has a plan for Israel, and He's saving Israel even today. I mean, many of you know our relationship with the believing jewish community and how the lord is reaching out to the jewish community all over the world and he continues to reach out to them in unfailing love it's just it's the pattern uh, of his nature it's who he is listen to hosea chapter 2 verse 4 therefore behold speaking of israel i will allure her and bring her into the wilderness interesting we get this crossing again right and i'm going to speak kindly to her okay The Bible says, behold, both the kindness and the severity of God. Very important to see both. And it says, then I will give her her vineyards from there. Now catch this. And the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Did you catch that? God says, Israel, you failed and failed and failed and failed. And he goes right back to where Achan and his family were completely wiped out because of their idolatry. And he says, even though you're still unfaithful, Israel, I'm gonna take you back to the Valley of Achor or the Valley of Trouble, and I'm gonna make it a door of hope. And he goes on to say, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, which means husband, and will no longer call me Baali, which means uh, it's just a picture of, uh, a, a, of, of a deity, uh, the Baals, uh, that was also means master or Lord. You're no longer going to call me by this image, this graven image up in the north uh, that was found there, but you're going to call me husband. In other words, I'm going to be a husband to you and you are going to be the church, the bride of Christ. Now, I don't know if I was able to communicate this today. I don't know if you were fully able to grasp it. I don't know that I can fully grasp this. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to grab you in such a profound way that, look, if you feel like I do, well, I sense some Gehazi in my own spirit. Well, there's hope for you. I sense Achan in my own heart. I I sense Ananias and Sapphira. Those kinds of tendencies are in my own heart. Well, guess what? Here's your promise. I'm going to bring you to the Valley of Acor, the Valley of Trouble, the very place where you're struggling, and I'm going to give you a door of hope. You know, what is it about hope that's so profound? I, I you know, I, I just was thinking about this week. You know, Nietzsche said this about hope. He said, hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. I mean, here's the, one of the most brutal atheists that we've ever known, a, actually a clear thinker in many ways, uh, he saw things past that are new atheists, many of the new atheists, so-called new atheists can't see. But he said, look, hope is, uh, is devastating, right? It's the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torment. What he's really saying is if you really understood the world from his view anyway, that there is no God, suicide's really the only answer. I mean, how can you deal with this? I mean, you have to have some escapism, but the Bible says the opposite. You need hope today? Well, the Valley of Achor is there. Romans 5, hope doesn't disappoint. 1 Corinthians 13, love hopes all things. Hebrews 6, hope we have is our anchor. And then 1 Peter 1, 3, we're born again to a living hope. I hope you got from this morning this picture of hope. And I don't regret last week. I know it might have been discouraging for some of you that you feel like it wasn't an uplifting message, but I'll tell you, until you have the black backdrop of God's hatred of sin and see it through those light, you're never going to understand the message and the glorious message of hope. Look, uh, we find ourselves in strange times. I'm going to turn this now back to Pastor Paul, and we're going to have now communion and he may even talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we need to judge ourselves rightly. I think that's appropriate and right. And by the way, I, I had hoped I never would know what this was, but my mother-in-law now has made a mass with Church at the Red Door <laughs> engraved on them. Uh, just the fact that I know what this is is staggering to me. So hopefully uh, we're gonna continue to press past this and just know that I love you. The Church of the Red Door team, team loves you. And I'll turn this back to Pastor Paul. Have a wonderful and glorious day. We love you.